Welcome to City Church. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, What we are doing at the beginning of our gatherings uh, over the last month and through next week is trying to give more clarity to who City Church is, who we are going to be moving into uh, the future, and what we're calling that is City 101. And so what I want to do is actually uh, take this morning to talk about two things. Number one, our uh, schedule over the next uh, month and how you can be incorporated officially into uh, City Church as a body. Okay, so we're going to handle that first. The second thing is just a a note on uh, budget stuff, which we're going to cover more, more fully next week uh, with both budget and hiring. Uh, so I know that that's kind of like a you know, pretty sterile way to start a uh, worship service. We won't do it past next week, and so I'm really excited about having that amount of clarity. But first, I want to cover the uh, next month's worth of things uh, uh, for those who are here, but then also those who are joining online or listening as a podcast later in the week. Uh, I want to tell you precisely what the timeline looks like in January for you to become a member of City Church. So for many of us, you go, becoming a member, I'm already a member. It's no big deal. Uh, Our church has changed a lot over the last year. And so what we are going to be doing is kind of refreshing our membership roles for our current elder team to know uh, who we are responsible for, for you to know who is a part of this body. We actually want to have a membership process so that we know who is officially in or out with City Church. Uh, That's very important. And there's lots of things in scripture that assume that we actually have a membership, being a part of a local body. Uh, And so we want to be obedient to those things as well. So uh, here's what the timeline looks like for January. January 3rd, we're going to have an official City 101. So what we've really actually been doing over the last month is telling you about all the things that have changed. But if you're a new person, you're like, well, I didn't really know theologically who City Church was or convictionally who City Church was. I'd really like to know those things as well. Uh, We're going to be having at 8 o'clock in the evening on January 3rd, an official City 101, where we put all of those things together on Zoom for one hour. You want to know how all of those things fit together? Uh, On that date, we'll actually be walking you through not just the changes that have happened, but who we want to be moving into the future, who we have been uh, theologically and convictionally, philosophically as a church. So if you're not, if you're still unclear, maybe you've been around for years and years and you're just not sure how these uh, changes affect or you have some questions, that's going to be the meeting for you. So put it on your calendar, 8 p.m., January 3rd, we're going to be having an official City 101. Then the next week, on the 10th of January, you'll come here or uh, receive this online. We're actually going to have our updated membership commitment, uh, covenant is actually what we're going to be calling it, uh, for uh, City Church. So we're going to be putting those things out in front of you. They're not going to change substantially from what has been in the past, but there are going to be a couple of things that we're uh, making sure are enunciated. Uh, with the size of our church and some of the things that we're looking for in the future. So you'll actually get that document, be able to look over it over the course of the next month. Then, not on the 10th, but on the uh, 17th, we're going to be having our first rhythm, and it's going to be a feast. After our gathering on Sunday morning, we're going to have a feast here in this room, uh, uh, all together. No worry about the potluck. No worry. Don't start thinking about what you're going to make, what dessert you're going to bring, or anything like that. We're actually going to have it catered. I think it's going to be something along the lines of uh, Uncle Julio's, for those of you who have been online and have uh, uh, been like, well, when do I go back? That's your week. That's when you need to come back. Uh, Uh, Come back to get some Uncle Julio's. I'm not above bribery. So... um, 
That's, uh, that's going to be on the 17th. Then that next week, the very next Sunday, we'll have another Zoom class. And it's going to be for those who have not been a member of City Church yet. We're going to have an official membership class. And that's where you're going to get uh, more of a robust chance to kind of ask questions about our covenant. You're going to get a chance to uh, learn a little bit more about like City Church and what life looks like within City Church. So if the City 101 is kind of a high level, that's where we're going to go into kind of the nitty gritty, who we want to be. Uh, that's where you're going to want to be if you uh, have not done that before. And so coming out of that class, we're actually going to have an interview for you to go uh, and be a part of. It's not like a uh, very high intensive, uh, it's just a chance for a pastor to get to know you, uh, hear about your uh, testimony, hear whether or not you've been baptized. Uh, It kind of uh, serves two purposes. It allows anybody who's wanting to come and be a part of our body uh, to know that we actually have a process for, you know, becoming a part of our body. Because we want for our gates to be as wide as Jesus' gates into the kingdom. But part of that is also just recognizing that there are wolves out there. There are people that are divisive, and so we want to actually protect our body and get to know people uh, and and just kind of uh, relatively assure that this is going to be a safe place for us. And so we're going to have an interview that's kind of coming out of that uh, that member uh, membership class. So then the next week, the 31st, all of these, if you uh, need to know, are on Sundays. So you can just look the the third the, uh, you know, the 10th, the 17th, 24th, 31st. The 31st is when we're asking you if you want to be a part of this body, you want to get those covenants back to us, bring them to this gathering. We're going to have our uh, box uh, here uh, for giving and tithing. You can put that in there. We'll make sure that you are added to our roles and that you are officially celebrated as a part of City Church. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, I know some of you are going, well, what about discipleship groups? I'm not in a discipleship group yet. I haven't been able to do base camps. That's a little bit more tricky. We have people that are wanting to be a part of a discipleship group. Right now, we're needing to use January to kind of see who that is. So if you're wanting to be a part of a discipleship group, maybe you were a part of one, but that one, uh, different people are going different places, and that's totally fine, but you want to be in one. Uh, what, what I need you to know is, is that we want you to be in one. Uh, as opposed to the past, they're not going to be mandatory for members. They're going to be strongly suggested. We think that most people at most times need to be a part of a discipleship group. Uh, if you're wanting to grow as a believer, if you're wanting to be discipled, if you're wanting to take uh, all that this church has to offer and wring it out uh, for your spiritual development and for you to be able to use your gifts, you need to be a part of a discipleship group. But we know and understand that there are people literally going through residency programs, uh, people that are a little bit more COVID conscious, and being a part of maybe an in-person meeting just hasn't worked as well and everything else. We don't want you to feel any level of uh, pressure or legalism as being a part of those classes, but we do want to provide that opportunity. If that's what you're wanting, it's what we're wanting too. And so please let us know. That's as simple as an email to me. Uh, Copy Andrew. We're going to be collecting those people that want to be a part of a group and just need some help trying to find out where they fit. Maybe you're even a part of a group right now, but something about the scheduling is just not working out and you want to confidentially just let us know, hey, we're interested in maybe being a part of another group. All of that stuff you should feel completely free in. We want to help you get there. And so just email us sometime over the next month to let us know that you want to be a part of that. But in the first two weeks of February, we are going to be having some kind of base camp. It may be another Zoom meeting for everybody. It may be uh, one of the uh, parts of, uh, one of the benefits of just being a smaller church is is that now we can actually make those things a little bit more personal, tailor-made. And so what we might do is instead of doing like a one-size-fits-all kind of base camp, we might actually do some one-on-group, you know, kind of trainings and and everything. But we're still in the formation of that. That's going to be uh, something that we're going to 
to be doing the first two weeks of February. Okay, so that is uh, the December, or, sorry, the January and then a little bit of February calendar. That's the process by which you become a partner. Those are the kind of hilltops where if you need more information, that's, that's where you're going. Okay, everybody clear? Okay, good. The second thing that I wanted to mention this morning, and actually what I originally intended for this City 101, is um, an update on budget and also an update on who we are hiring as a part of kind of cementing in some of the things that have been overlooked uh, in the past. But I've not been able to fully form our budget for 2021, not from lack of effort, uh, just because uh, there are some things, there are some constraints there that are just more difficult. And so I need another week or so to work those things out, finalize, you know, some hirings and stuff like that. So I'm going to give you a big, broad, overarching uh, two, two points this morning that you need to know if you're wanting to be a part of City Church. The first one is, is that our budget is shrinking due to COVID, due to the fact that we've sent, you know, about a third of our people out of our body at this point to be a part of another plant, uh, and just some of the things that are just happening kind of culturally right now. We've, uh, we're a smaller church now. And so our uh, expenses from this year, from 2020, are going from $404,000 this year to somewhere in the range of two hundred dollars to $260,000. So that's a precipitous drop in our expenses. Now, I'm not discouraged by that. I think that God's going to provide everything that we need as a body. And in fact, in some ways, it's providing some constraints just for us to be realistic about who we are and making some really assertive decisions about where we are going to be directing those resources. So I'm not discouraged at all. In fact, I think that, you know, having that size budget for our size church is pretty incredible anyway. And so uh, we are going to be, if you're wondering, hey, how can I pray? You know, how can I be participating in everything? pray for our budget this week. Uh, We're going to be getting into the details and cutting out all of the things that we can. Now, here's another top line thing that that means. For our church, we are not able to hire another full-time pastor. I had originally kind of, I was aiming at it, thinking about it, who that would be and everything else. We just don't have the money uh, to do that right now. And that includes me too. And so we're only going to have one full-time pastor. That's Andrew Rubinson. He's going to be preaching this morning. Um, And uh, and, and we're not going to be able to make any of those... uh, any full-time hires at this point. And so that, that's actually, it's not a discouragement to me, but I'd really wanted to do that, but we just don't have the ability to do that. But what we are going to do is make a couple of part-time hires to solidify some, uh, some areas of need that really need to get shored up, and I'm super excited about those. So uh, be praying over the next week that we're able to uh, get into the fine point details on that, that God is going to provide a way for us to make sure that that fits into a realistic budget for us. Um, so that's, that's that portion of it. I have a third thing that you need to know about our finances, though, just so that you don't think, wow, this is really pretty fragile as a church. God, uh, you know, has reduced our cash flow over the last uh, year or so, but we still do have actually quite a bit of cash in the bank. Uh, we are going to have somewhere at the end of this year, somewhere between four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars in the bank, and we also own Lancaster City Center outright. There's no debt. We don't have any sort of debt. And so if there's any part of you that's going like, man, how is this sustainable or whatever, we do have things that can still allow for us to make some capital expense uh, purchases uh, to continue on as a body, uh, to allow us to possibly either make some improvements here to our gathering space or look for something else that is a place that is more conducive to joyful worship. That was not, see, actually, that was probably the appropriate amount of laughter. It's like... (laughs) 
This is not a real joyful place, so maybe we should be pretty, uh, pretty serious about that. So uh, we are going to be looking at that. We are looking at that at present is just, hey, how do we either make this environment a place that's more conducive to worship or uh, actually go to another place? We do have some of the funds outside of our operations budget to do that. And so I'm not worried about our finances, just wanting to shore those things up. So I would be remiss in just telling you, our church does not ask, uh, except for in our church uh, membership covenant, that you are given and everything. We don't spend much time asking for that. What I am going to ask you uh, right now is that if you're planning on becoming a member of City Church, uh, just to be steadfast in your giving. I'm not asking you for a certain amount. I'm not asking you to tell me what that amount is. I actually don't know what you give at present. We have a deacon of uh, finances that handles all of that for us and everything. I'm just asking you to be faithful to our body as we are entering into a more fragile season. So uh, since that is obviously the most uh, clear point at which we should jump straight into worship. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, And if you would, stand as we're praying. God and Father, you are great and glorious. We uh, know that you love us so deeply. We don't know it because we feel that and just uh, thought that it would be a good idea. We know that because you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. You lost your son so that you could uh, gain all of the sons and daughters uh, that, you, uh, that you had in mind to bring into your kingdom. Uh, Father, we, uh, we know that you love us because you raised your son from the dead and told us that he would be uh, with us until the end of the age and for forevermore. And so we are just filled with thoughts, just creative, uh, enamored thoughts of the love that you have for us this morning. And so, Father, as we um, uh, are pointing ourselves in the direction of worship, Lord, would you steady our hearts? Would you silence and quiet our hearts where they are restless? Would we find our rest in you? And will we be able to sing loud into our King Jesus? Father, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you uh, have a copy of Scripture, keep it open to uh, that passage in Isaiah 9. Uh, Keep a finger in that because we're going to be jumping around just a little bit. Um, As you just heard, we're continuing. uh, We're continuing uh, in Isaiah 9 looking at the prophecy of Emmanuel. Two weeks ago, we saw in Isaiah chapter 7 the sign of Emmanuel. It was a sign that was simultaneously as high as heaven and as deep as death. And then last week in the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, we saw the light of Emmanuel. And that was the light of hope that God shone into a very uh, dark time in the world. Uh, And this week, I feel like I get the easy assignment because this week uh, we get to talk about babies. 
uh, because our text says a child is born, a son is given. And what do people say about babies? That they are little bundles of joy. That's right. My wife and I have had three babies, uh, two sons and one daughter, and it's true. They are little bundles of joy. Uh, One pastor I'm familiar with uh, refers to them as little bundles of sin, and that is true too. But even so, I love being a dad uh, because my children really are a joy to me. Uh, my first son, when he was born, he, uh, he was bald. He looked like this wrinkly old man, and it was really cute. Uh, my second son was this, he was much bigger. He was a super chunk. Uh, and my daughter, our newest one, is just gorgeous. She is already my princess. Uh, each of them, so cute. Uh, each of them, so unique. And each of them really has been a bundle of joy. Uh, I will confess, though, my oldest son... Um, He did not sleep through the night until he was almost a year and a half old, and so it was not always like an exuberant joy, Uh, certainly at least not at night. uh, The days were okay. Uh, But even with the challenges, uh, babies really are little bundles of joy. And the Christmas story is a testament to this fact because it centers on a baby. And when Mary, the mother of Jesus, found out that she was going to have a baby, she said in her Magnificat, my spirit rejoices in God my, my Savior. She was full of joy because of a baby. And of course, the baby born at Christmas, the Lord Jesus, uh, he was unique. Uh, He was not just a bundle of joy. He was a bundle of unconquerable joy. The joy of Emmanuel, the joy of Jesus, is, is an unconquerable joy. The message of Christmas is the arrival of unconquerable joy. That's what we need to see in our text today. The uh, the message of Christmas is the arrival of unconquerable joy. And it's unconquerable, um, uh, meaning it it cannot be taken from you. It cannot wear out. It cannot diminish. That's because the joy of Christmas is not a feeling. It's not something that we just feel in our hearts. The joy of Christmas is a person. It is a person who once died, but who now lives and will never die again. The joy of Christmas is unconquerable because it is found in Jesus, who is himself unconquerable. Now, whether you were alive in Judah at the time of Isaiah or whether you're here living with us through 2020, uh, there is no, no shortage of gloomy news. Uh, gloomy news is everywhere. And that is why Judah uh, needed and why we need the message of joy, a joy that cannot be lost. Um, So to see this clearly, we're going to recap just a little bit of where we've been so we can set the stage in Isaiah for what this arrival of unconquerable joy looks like. So if you will, um, turn to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1. And it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz, he is the king of Judah, and his people, uh, he and his people, they were all in a panic because the northern kingdom of Israel had teamed up with the kingdom of Syria. And they were going to come and invade the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, don't be afraid. Don't shake like the tree in front of the wind. Uh, Instead, be firm in your faith. God will take care of this. But Ahaz doesn't listen to God. And instead, he goes and seeks help from a foreign nation. 
He seeks help from the king of Assyria who was very willing to come and help for the right price. And God then warns Ahaz because he didn't listen to him. God says, since you didn't listen to me, essentially this is going to go much worse for you. All of those Assyrian troops that you're very happy about that you hired, they're going to turn their back on you. They're going to stab you in the back. And the king of Assyria is going to flood your land with his troops. We see that in Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 5, if you want to go there. It says, The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Ramaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many. Okay, so um, they refuse the waters of Shiloh. They refuse God's gentle waters, and instead they are looking to these two uh, uh, kings uh, who... Uh, are not following the Lord, and so what God is going to do is bring against them the waters of the river, uh, capital R. I don't know why it's capital, but it's serious. Uh, It's the waters of the river. They're mighty and many, and then he names what that river is. He says it is the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. So they are going to deal with the problem up north. That is actually going to happen. Assyria is going to take care of that problem, but they're not going to stop there. They're going to sweep on south into Judah. So they will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Uh, Hey, Judah, you're going to be up to your neck in Assyrians. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Now, super interesting here. If you look at it, whose land is it? What was that? Uh, So it says, uh, the outspread wings will fill uh, your land, O. Emmanuel, thank you. (laughs) It's Emmanuel's land. But Emmanuel wasn't there yet. Emmanuel wasn't there. He had just been prophesied about a few verses earlier in chapter 7, but he hadn't come yet. But here God says it's already Emmanuel's land. So sure was the sign of Emmanuel that God spoke as though it had already been. It was signed and sealed, just not quite yet delivered. But it was already Emmanuel's land. Israel's schemes could not stand against Emmanuel. Syria could not stand against Emmanuel. Assyria couldn't stand against him. And Judah itself, with all its failings, could not stand against what God was doing. That is because they didn't call the shots in Emmanuel's land. And now the people who understood this, who were, uh, who were not trying to call the shots in Emmanuel's land, but instead who trusted God, uh, the people who saw the bleakness, the darkness of the situation, who saw the foolishness of King Ahaz, and who yearned for God's light, they were the ones that we read about last week in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And there it says that they would have no gloom over them. But think about this. These people were just told, an invasion is coming for you. Uh, they, They would see the swords and the spears. They would see the soldiers marching through their towns. That sounds pretty gloomy. Could you imagine if we walked out of here today and we saw some uh, troops from some foreign nation parading through our streets heavily armed? That'd be a pretty gloomy sight. We'd be pretty scared in that situation. So how is it that they could say that there's no gloom for them? How can Isaiah say that? It is because he knew they were already living in Emmanuel's land. 
and the Assyrians, who were trying to trample Emmanuel's land, would hopelessly fail. They knew God was faithful. It was already Emmanuel's land, which means Assyria could not take it. That's why, again, the prophecy of Isaiah 9 that we started in last week, um, there was a curious change in tenses. I don't know if you caught it, uh, but it's very interesting. It says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. It says he has made glorious, but again, it hasn't happened yet up to this point. But so sure was God's word that it could be said that in a latter time, it's already done. It's already happened. And then going on, again, as we saw last week in verse 2, it says, the people who walked in darkness, past tense, have seen, also past tense, a great light. He hadn't come yet. But they've already seen it somehow. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. God's word was that sure. It could be described as already done. And now we come to our text in verse 3. And captured uh, captured in this prophecy is everything that Israel was hoping for everything that they were yearning and desiring for. And so let's look at it. It says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. That's actually a really big deal. Uh, One of Isaiah's children was named Shir Jashub, and it was a reference to a remnant. A remnant will return. Uh, God's people didn't want to be a remnant. Uh, They didn't want to be some small, faithful remnant. They wanted to be the great nation that God had promised to Abraham. And so when they get this prophecy that says, you've multiplied the nation, that is a really exciting thing. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice with, before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this would be like payday on steroids. Um, it, it would be like conquering some evil uh, empire and then having this embarrassment of wealth and riches from them, uh, this plunder that you get to divide up, to divide up amongst the people. Uh, that sounds pretty exciting. We won the battle and we get the gold. Uh, it would be like harvest day uh, when God provides a huge bounty and everything they needed was already theirs. It would be a great day for celebration. This is what Israel wanted, and if we are thinking about it rightly, I would say this is what we want too. We want to be a multiplied people. We want to be full of joy. That's why we have set the vision for our church that we have, a revival, a multiplying of joyful worship. This was Israel's desire. This is our desire. What does it look like? What does this uh, multiplying of of joy uh, look like? Uh, Isaiah gives three descriptions of it. If you look at verses 4, 5, and 6, what do they all begin with? What was that? Four. That's right. Thank you. Um, They begin with the word four, um, and each is an explanation of the joy in verse In other words, it would be like saying, we are so joyful, for you have done this, for you have done this, for you have done this. Or it would be like a a woman telling her husband, I feel so loved, for you have done the dishes, for you have made the bed, for you have brought me flowers. It's a a threefold picture, a threefold explanation that Isaiah is giving to us here, a threefold vision of what Israel's joy would one day look like. And so what is it? First in verse 4, it says, for the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
And this language of yoke and staff and rod, it's a reference to shepherding or farming. Um, a yoke was a wooden beam that would be fastened over the necks of oxen or large animals to keep them uh, straight, uh, to guide them when they were plowing the field. But when it's applied to people, uh, when you talk about a yoke being applied to people, it's a picture of slavery and oppression. Uh, the staff for the shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, those were tools for submission to get animals to comply. And God is saying that is all going to be broken as on the day of Midian. Uh, Midian is a reference to Judges chapter 6 and 7, uh, where there is this legendary victory. It's the true 300 story, uh, where Gideon uh, has his 300 men, and they induce this great panic into this very large Midianite camp. And they send the Midianites running, and in the midst of the panic, they don't know who they're fighting. They're just trying to fight and get out of there, and they end up uh, slaying each other. And so the Midianites are totally destroyed. Gideon and his men are able to uh, pick up the princes and the kings of the Midianites and destroy them. Uh, So uh, Midian came to a very decisive end. They were uh, just utterly destroyed. And what God is saying is oppression itself would be defeated. Oppression itself would come to that end. Those who oppress, along with their tools, would also come to that decisive end. They would be destroyed like Midian. In other words, God was going to set his people free. They would find joy in the freedom that God was giving them. Uh, Moving on, verse 5, the second picture of joy. It says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here the prophecy is one of peace. Israel could have joy because they were at peace, and it would be an eternal peace. It would be an eternal peace that we can see because all of the war gear, the bloodied garments, even the marching boots, they wouldn't be needed anymore. They, they are more useful as fuel for the fire. They have more use as kindling than to just sit in your house and take up space. The war is going, uh, war is going to end. What Isaiah was doing here is he's picking up on something he actually began in chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, he describes the mountain of the Lord, uh, Mount Zion, and says there would come a day when the word of God would come from Mount Zion, and it would uh, go to the nations. And at that time, he says, that nations shall beat their swords, and uh, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. You may have heard that language before, and just not known it was from Isaiah, Uh, the, the secular world also uh, captures this as well, uh, this idea of beating swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Uh, again, in Isaiah 2, it says, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But again, remember the context. An invasion is coming. Swords and spears, Assyrians up to your neck. But God is saying eventually those swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. are not going to need them anymore. Those spears are going to be turned into pruning hooks. The battle garb can be used as kindling. You don't need it. It's just fuel for the fire. These are great and ultimate hopes for the people of God, that there will one day come a time when oppression will end, when war will be no more. This is stuff we sing about, right? Uh, Especially at Christmas. We sang it last week. Uh, We sang, uh, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. As, uh, as an aside, the, the secular world actually gets this too. Uh, the non-Christian world actually desires these things also. They just want them on different terms. 
Um, you can see that real clearly if you've ever seen the musical Les Mis. Um, I'm not going to dog on the musical. It's good. It's a good story. Um, <clears throat> but in the finale of Les Mis, uh, the, uh, the, the, the lyrics read, uh, they will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. They will walk behind the plowshare. They will put away the sword. The chain will be broken and all men will have their reward. It is a great desire that's expressed there. It's Isaiah. Uh, the problem actually is the next line of the finale. Again, if you're familiar with it, it says the next line, will you join in our crusade? In other words, join the revolution. Um, whether you know your history or not, I'm just going to tell you the French revolution was a giant mess. Um, and essentially the song is saying, put an end to war and fighting by warring and fighting. That's not how Isaiah 9 comes to pass. That is how secular man attempts it. That's how Assyria was going to attempt it. We'll just conquer and take over things. But we know that doesn't work. We know that doesn't work because, again, this is Emmanuel's land. And that means things have to be done Emmanuel's way. War has to end Emmanuel's way. Oppression has to end Emmanuel's way. In the world outside of Christ, outside of Emmanuel, you cannot have both of these prophecies. You cannot have an end to slavery and oppression and an end to war. You could possibly have one or the other. Uh, you could have one great empire that dominates the rest, and so everybody else is the oppressed uh, folks under that one great empire. They become the slaves. Uh, or you could have a whole bunch of warring nations uh, where, uh, where there's not oppression. They just always are fighting each other. But only with Emmanuel can you actually have both. Only with Emmanuel can you get a prophecy that says that oppression and war will both cease. How does it happen? That's what we see in verse 6, the third great joy of the people of God. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In other words... War and oppression would end with the coming of Emmanuel. The new king had to arrive. Uh, he was prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 7. By, the chap by chapter 8, uh, the land is already described as his, and the Assyrian invasion was coming to nothing. And then chapter 9, how does it all happen? Well, Emmanuel actually has to come. He has to arrive. Uh, I want to explain... Um, briefly, how somebody in Judah at that time might have understood this. Uh, it is very possible that the people to whom Isaiah wrote this prophecy thought that Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, was actually the fulfillment of this prophecy. Hezekiah, um, he was a good king. He was a good king, and under his leadership, Assyria was defeated, and afterward, there was peace in his reign. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 37, uh, Jerusalem is being attacked by Assyria, and Hezekiah leads the people in repentance. They turn to God, and then it says in the chapter uh, that an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyria. And it doesn't mince words. It goes on to say, and when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So God decimated the Assyrians after Hezekiah repented and turned to the Lord. So it is very possible that Hezekiah was the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy because he did deliver Israel and in his reign there was peace. But he was not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Unfortunately, 
uh, about 20 verses after Hezekiah delivers the people uh, and turns them to the Lord, uh, uh, in, uh, in chapter 39, these representatives from Babylon arrive. And, I, and Hezekiah makes the same mistake that his father Ahaz made. Ahaz made the mistake of trying to cozy up to Assyria, and they double-crossed him. Hezekiah made the mistake of trying to cozy up to Babylon, and they also eventually double-crossed him. Uh, it was about 100 years later, so Hezekiah was actually already uh, dead, but they double-crossed Judah, um, and Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, and the people were led off into captivity. So Hezekiah was not the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy of Emmanuel, because, under, uh, because following him, the, their wars had not ceased. Oppression had not ceased. God's people still needed Emmanuel. And so the question then would be, when would he come? you're stuck in captivity, when, when's the Savior going to come? When's the, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah, going to arrive? And the answer was about 600 years later. 600 years later, a descendant of King David would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And if you jump over to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 20, um, an angel is speaking to a man named Joseph. And he says this, Joseph Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was the Hebrew name Joshua. It means Yahweh saves, or God saves. And in this story, we are told that a virgin is going to have a child, and she's going to name him Jesus, because he would save his people from their sin. The Savior was coming. And then, if you turn one more place over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the one who would bring comfort to Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Um, Christ means anointed one. Uh, David was the anointed king, and we are told here uh, that Jesus was the new anointed one. It says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Matthew is saying, Luke, Simeon, they're saying, Emmanuel has come. Jesus, the Savior, was born. The, uh, this, this bundle of unconquerable joy had arrived. Now, you might be asking, well, that sounds really great. Uh, I, I'm glad to hear that. But what about all of that end of oppression and war stuff? Where is that at? Because we know what's happening around the world. So where is all of that end of oppression and war? Jesus' disciples actually wanted to know this very same thing. Uh, they thought that Emmanuel was going to come like a warrior. He was going to kick some tail, throw the Romans out, uh, that he would uh, restore uh, the, the, the nation, that he would bring it into a time of everlasting peace. Um, they thought that because they also knew the prophecy of Isaiah. 
They also knew that an end to oppression and an end to war were supposed to be part of Emmanuel's coming. So how can we Christians then say that Emmanuel came and 2,000 years later, oppression is still very present? Wars are still being fought. Um, people, as you might know, make careers on Twitter accusing other people of being oppressors. And when it comes to Twitter, it's mostly a lot of foolishness. Uh, but they wouldn't do it if oppression was no longer a thing. Oppression still exists. War still exists. Power is still very much the pursuit of mankind. So how then can we say Emmanuel has come? How can we say it was Jesus? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus tells us how the kingdom of God works. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven, he's saying, does not show up like a battalion of tanks rolling through your town, uh, just crushing everything in its path. That's not how God's kingdom works. It's slow. It works from the inside, but eventually it does take over. Uh, eventually the lump of dough is fully leavened. It just takes a long time. So think of it this way. Uh, what takes longer? Uh, does it take longer to make a mess or to clean one up? If you told some rambunctious children, go make a mess, how long would it take? About five seconds, right? Adam introduced sin into the world, and the world had several thousand years to grow in it. Uh, the human race became very industrious in its ability to sin. Uh, we have made a global mess. But has the remedy to that sin come? Has the restoration project started? Is the mess being dealt with? Yes, it is. Uh, the redemption of the world began in Jesus. He is the Redeemer. He is the one putting all things right. But again, it does not happen like an Assyrian invasion. It happens like leaven. But it is happening. The problem that plagued mankind was not simply war and oppression. It was a heart that craved power. A heart that was willing to oppress and destroy to get that power. When Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden to, uh, to eat the fruit, it, it wasn't simply just that. It wasn't just, hey, eat this fruit. Uh, the temptation that the devil uh, got them with was, eat it and you will be like God. Grabbing the fruit was an attempt to grab power. That's what makes uh, Jesus and the Christian gospel actually so unique. Uh, we aren't claiming power. We aren't trying to grab power. We are actually saying that a child was born, a son was given, uh, son was given and the government is on his shoulder, not ours. We don't claim power. We surrender it. We give it to Jesus. That's what Jesus taught us. He didn't come claiming authority and kingship. He came to serve. He came to show the world a different way. He came to show the world God's way. The way to power is not to grasp at it. It is actually to surrender it. Jesus, our Emmanuel, the God-man, the anointed one, came to serve. He gave his life. And we, the power-hungry, authority-grasping world, hated his example. We rejected him just like Adam and Eve rejected God. And in our rejection, we crucified him. But what happened after we crucified him? What happened is God raised him up from the dead, and he set him on the throne of heaven. 
He put all things under his feet. He has become king of heaven and earth. He surrendered his authority to God, and God raised him up to the place of highest authority. And now the invitation to the world is, come, surrender any perceived authority that you think you have, give it to the king, and he will actually give you a place in his eternal kingdom. He will actually give you real authority. And for those who follow him, he has shattered the rod and staff of our greatest oppressor, the devil. And now we can read in Psalm 23 of his staff and rod that are comfort to us. He comforts us with his staff and rod. This is also why, um, why the secular world uh, hates Jesus. They acknowledge he has a staff and rod. He's God. He has authority. If he has authority, that means he can wield the staff and rod. And we don't like that. At one time, we all did not like that. We didn't want to be ruled by God's staff and rod. But we came to understand that God's staff and rod are not oppressive. They are guides and they are comforts to us. Matthew uh, says, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So mankind can either claim autonomy. Uh, We can either claim a self-rule, self-law, self-government. Rule ourselves. And, And if that's the case, if we choose that, we will be forever mastered by the tempter and deceiver of the world. Or mankind can reject autonomy and embrace dependence on God whose love endures forever and whose ways are always good. God who did not reject us in our rebellion, but instead came to rescue us, who sacrificed his own son to redeem us from sin and death. Jesus, again, our Emmanuel, really did deal with our deepest oppression, and he did it by submitting to it. If you look back at our text, in verse 4, it says, for the yoke of his burden the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Jesus took upon himself what we deserved. He was beaten with a rod of oppression. He was forced to submit under the staff of wicked men, and he was yoked to a Roman cross. And God destroyed all of that as on the day of Midian. God decimated the punishment that should have fallen on us. Jesus took it, and in so doing, he broke that staff, that rod, that yoke, such that the only thing that remains for his people is his comfort and ease. The message of Christmas really is tidings of comfort and joy. So not only did he actually deal with our uh, deepest oppression and crush it, he also put an end to the great war. We were at war with God. We were the rebels And rather than crushing us, he crushed our rebellion and brought us back into fellowship with God. He stopped the war and he gave us peace. We are at peace with God now. Ephesians says that Jesus is our peace. Our text here says that he is the prince of peace. And he has made us children of God. We don't have words to fathom that, that the enemies became the king's children. What an unexplainable love. The only word we have for it is grace, because we didn't deserve anything of the kind, but God loved to do it. That's also why Scripture tells us that God loves a cheerful giver, because it means we're being like him. 
he cheerfully gave to us a gift of infinite value. Jesus came for us. He took on the humiliation of humanity. God stepped in. The, the, the God of heaven and earth, the one who can speak life and light, stepped into creation to endure the humiliation of having someone change his dirty diapers. To endure the humiliation of having to be fed and burped and he spit up. God had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. God had to grow up and he had to die. He went through the humiliation of humanity to come and get us. He died for you to put an end to our oppression, to put an end to our great war. And now he sends us out to tell the world all about it, to let them know the war is over. Stop fighting. The king is good. His rod and staff are a comfort. His yoke is easy. Stop fighting against him. Come and meet him. Well, who is he? Who is this king? Well, he is the king of heaven and earth. The government really is on his shoulder. Uh, Church, you know what that means? That means we don't have to get caught up in the political panic. We have an unconquerable king. Jesus is Lord. There is no other. He is the wonderful counselor. That means his ways are always good. He rules in truth and justice. He is the mighty God, and he is for you. He is our everlasting father. Um, I want to explain that because that can be a little bit confusing. That does not mean that Jesus is God the father. Um, That's not what it's saying. Uh, Galatians Galatians calls the church uh, a mother, uh, which would make Christ a father. Christ is sometimes called in Scripture our brother, or he's called a king, or he's the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Sometimes Christ is called the head, and the church is the body. And another image we get is the church as mother and Christ as father. It means he is a faithful protector. He's a good king, a good husband, and he is this everlastingly. He's also the prince of peace. His kingdom is one of peace. He truly came to bring peace on earth. That is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we actually expect it to happen. We expect the peace that Jesus achieved to impact the world. Uh, The the peace that we feel is not just reserved uh, for heaven. It's not reserved for eternity. It's, it's a peace that is for right now. If I'm at peace with God, I can actually carry that peace to my neighbor. If you've got a grudge against someone, that's not living in peace. You're, you're not pursuing the peace of God's kingdom in this world. As the gospel spreads and as God's kingdom expands to houses and nations, there really will be results. The result really will be fewer wars fought, less oppression happening. The church will be multiplied, and our joy will increase. The kingdom is like leaven. It just takes time, but it starts in us. So, returning to uh, the thesis, the, the message of Christmas is the arrival of unconquerable joy. It is the arrival of an unconquerable kingdom. It is unconquerable because our Lord is unconquerable. Sin could not conquer him. 
The devil could not conquer him. Not even death could conquer him. They all tried their best, and still he rose up in victory over them. Jesus' victory is your victory. You are bound up in Jesus because you follow him. He did this for you. So if sin couldn't conquer Jesus, guess what? It can't conquer you. The devil cannot conquer you. Death cannot conquer you because Christ has risen and he is on his throne and your eternity, our eternity, is bound up in him. He died in your place. That means when he rose up over death and sin and the devil, you rose up over death and sin and the devil. Christ is our unconquerable joy. The unconquerable joy of Christmas is the unconquerable Savior of sinners. And now through us, he is continuing his unstoppable conquest, bringing the good news of unconquerable joy to the world. So what should we do? What should we do with this unconquerable joy? I'll tell you, we should give cheerfully this Christmas. We should sing loudly. We should feast gladly. We should proclaim boldly. We should spread the true joy of Christmas. We should worship Jesus. Though the world is in a panicked frenzy, we should slumber peacefully. Though madness seems to be everywhere, we should laugh at the futility Jesus is the King of kings. He is the King of heaven and earth. He is Emmanuel, and he has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So whether panic or pandemic, whether violence or madness should come against us, whether it is an invasion or whether it is a plague, it does not matter. Our joy remains unconquerable, for Emmanuel has come. He lives, he reigns, we are his people, and this is Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Our Father in God, We thank you that you have made us heirs of an unconquerable kingdom, that you have given us a mission that is unstoppable. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, who who submitted to the, uh, the yoke and the rod and the staff and who broke them all for us, and now he gently, tenderly leads us with his. Father, we pray that you would fill us with joy, that the joy of Emmanuel would overwhelm in us, that you would multiply our joy just like we read here in Isaiah, that we would have joy like a great harvest, joy like a great victory. We know our God is with us. Emmanuel has come. He has put an end to the oppression. He has put an end to the war. We are at peace now. And so, Lord, would you do your great work uh, in us through your spirit, the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, would you fill our songs now uh, with great joy and exuberance as we remember and, uh, and think just on uh, what you have done for us at Christmas. For we ask this in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.